Introducing Mortgage Matters. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. A show dedicated to helping you navigate a challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. The economy continues to face numerous difficulties. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage. live from the KVEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about, time for Mortgage Matters. Well, hello, good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks to the Motor Mouse listeners for sticking around. I was listening. I, I listened to Motor Mouse, you know, on my drive-in. Yeah, it's a good show. It's a good show. It's just like the Mortgage Matters is a great show. It's a good show. Mm-hmm. And I learned some things. And, by the way, I had no idea the Ghosty Cowl song was as long as it is. It is That's really. like six minutes See, of Ghosty Cowl. Yeah, Ghosty Cowl, Ghosty Cowl, Ghosty Cowl. Yeah, no, I, I grew up on the Ghosty Cowl. Oh, I don't, absolutely. You remember that, too, even yeah, though the yeah. dealership was like down in like a... Yeah. There must have been a Northern California dealership I because so. that was definitely... Seems like there should of, have been. That was in Sacramento for sure. And yeah, I think the one down... spot, which was never a dog. Right. No. Yeah, it was yeah. like a monkey or something, right? Yeah, a exactly. chimpanzee. Mm-hmm. Elephant, yeah. possibly. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, we were thinking about that one. And he said the uh, number one death of people under 35 was from car accidents. And I thought, sweet. I yeah. survived that one. <laughs> I, know. I made it over 35, and I've been in cars... A lot since then. Since, I got you know since before thirty five. I got to bring up the picture of the sixteen girls packed into a smart car again and show that to you guys. That was funny. Oh, did he uh, early in the show? Did he talk about that list? I saw a list this week of like the fifteen worst cars you could get, and that smart car was one of them. Jeep had a couple of them. That was kind of yeah. sad. Poor Jeep. What makes them the worst? Is it? Like uh, it was, is no, it? it was usually like depreciation and or um, I don't know, dependability, basically. They said it would just basically these are just bad cars and you're hmm. avoid at all costs. And a, a lot of them were cars that seemed not too common. But yeah, Mazda had a couple and Jeep had a couple. But that the one that, you know, I thought, duh, that smart car one. Um, my, the little, I'm talking the little, like, yeah, it's like a, it's smaller than a golf cart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, what's not smart about that car. I mean, if everybody had one, that's probably a smart car. Right. But what's not smart about that car is when it collides with something that weighs 10 times more than it. My brothers that are paramedics, he said, they, they said that these things would just take off tumbling mm-hmm. in a wreck. Like on the freeway, you can just find them where they've rolled and rolled and rolled and rolled. Mm-hmm. That's scary. Yeah, really, that doesn't I've feel seen, smart. I've seen a smart car crash test, and yeah, it doesn't look like it's too smart. That's for sure. But you know what does look smart about that car? On a marsh over here, we walk past a residence where they have like a four-foot-long driveway. And mm. there's no car they could fit in there but that little. Uh, that one's a Fiat, but you know, same kind of thing. The wheelbase is like 36 inches. Oh, yeah. There's how many people is that? 16. 
in a smart car. Those must be pretty good friends because <laughs> they're very um, well. Yeah. And yeah, but there's no. It's way a very that interactive. That, that car's going to go car. anywhere. You no. can't drive. No, that you can car. see <laughs> no. that the body is like resting on the wheels. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Funny, huh? Huh. Yeah. Guinness Book of 19 World Records. Nineteen girls actually, and yeah. one car. Yeah. Wow. Fun. Crazy. Oh. <laughs> they didn't have to close the doors, huh? No, or the hatch. So there's a little getting around that, but yeah, yeah. they're pretty that much seems in like the car. Cheating. They're pretty much in the car. Yeah, but yeah, I think I you feel like you should have to have a fully closed up door. Car. Yeah, mm-hmm. I missed <laughs> you guys last week. We missed you. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, you know, and it was you guys were talking about the. Uh, the jobs report at least a little bit. Yeah, we talked about that a little. We um, there was a hundred and eighty-seven thousand jobs created, or something like that. Like one seventy-six. One seventy-six. Yeah, it was all right. But if you backed out the uh, all of the Republican presidential candidates here, it would only be like four. Right. Right. <laughs> I read that. Oh, you brought jokes today. <laughs> you brought jokes. This is great. There's nothing of substance to talk about, so you know. <laughs> We're just going to try to lightheartedly tie some humor into today's economy. Well, you know what I found interesting about that is, you know, with with the media's love of, of taking a story and hyping it one way or the other. It's oh, yeah. the best of times. It's the worst of times. Um, this is the first time in how many months that we failed to create at least 200,000 jobs. But there was really no mention of that. What was mentioned was that, oh, the past two or three August figures have been revised upward. So this just one's wait. clearly just a low first reading. Yeah, just wait. <laughs> next next month, we're going to bump this pup up higher. It'll be nothing to worry about. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. And you know, this is the month, right? I mean, next week yeah. it is. Tuesday, Wednesday. The feds are going to meet up and discuss... Whether or not it's time to change uh, the interest rate, essentially. I mean, among other things, but all I really care about is the interest rate, right? Yeah. And I think this is so funny. It's kind of an interesting parallel here to when we we were predicting whether or not the feds were going to bail out of the... Uh, the QE3, they were going to announce the tapering, right? The month that it would start. And they said in May that they were going to, hey, this is coming. It's coming soon, whatever. Don't be surprised. And then month after month after month after month, they didn't do it. And then all eyes were on that December meeting. And remember, this is before Yellen took over for Bernanke. And we had pretty good job growth. I mean, over 200,000 jobs created a year. And then that December, which was right before they were to take over, you know, Yellen was to take over, um, there was a jobs report and the jobs report for December was, um, it was bad. Showed that there was like 70 something thousand jobs created or some, something like that. I'm, and maybe I'm exaggerating to one side or the other, but it was terrible. It was one of the worst that we had had in the the short recent history. And I thought, there, if they're if these are one of the critical pieces of data they have to hang on as to whether or not they'd taper, this one says no. And 
I've not forgotten about that. I don't know that I'll ever forget about that because I was so blindsided that December was the month they pulled the trigger. In between the handoff from Bernanke to Yellen, I thought was pretty wild. Um, on the heels of one of the worst job report that we'd had in the previous six months. And then, so this week, I'm like, huh, what's going to happen next week? We have the... I think really, other than that unemployment rate dropping, still one of the worst jobs creation, right, for a first reading. That's the worst that we've had in, I don't know, a year maybe? Is it a year? Yeah. Have you seen something in the 170s in the last year? No. I I've, I was thinking that it was about a year and a half or so that, okay. that we've had 200,000 jobs. I did, I'm a known exaggerator, so I didn't yeah, want I to know. exaggerate it, out to 18 months. I thought I'd stick with 12, but... Point being, it's been a while. We've been over 200,000 jobs a month for a while. And so I'm just curious, what are you thinking? Are you Do you feel at all like it's possible they could raise, raise that rate this week? I'm firmly in the 50-50 camp. Wow, that's very <laughs> yeah. daring of you. It could go either way. So and I wouldn't be surprised either way. You wouldn't? No. Yeah. There's so much to argue on either side. So... and. So it's just a matter of when, and it could just as well be now. And they got to do it at one point, right? Yeah, I mean, it's going to happen. It could be now. It it really just, it could go either way. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, it could go either way. And the other thing, too, is it could easily, by way of the statement and um, pref press conference, it could easily be that they just push it up by a quarter and then have a conference that says, hey, we're probably not going to raise again for a while, but we're testing the waters here. It's been a long time that the rate's been so low, so we're pushing it up a quarter percent. We're going to see what happens. And you can't argue the sky is falling and everybody freak out and run for the hills. Yeah, it shows that there's already there's a change probably in like the the path here of the economy, but um, one could argue that we're already there. Right. That's already built into the market. That's why we believe it's a 50 50 next week. It's going to go up. So, you know, it, it, we'll see. I, I, for one, am excited just to see the rate change for the first time to tell me that we're in a spot where it could change and um, let all the anticipation sort of just be done. You know, it's like I, I always feel like it's like that first kiss. The anticipation is way greater than the deed. And as soon as they do the first one, I actually think the market's probably calm down a little bit and understand what's going on. The only thing that I really do question here is how it fits into the global economy. With everything else that's dragging, is this the right time? You know, you can't really isolate what's happening on American soil from what's happening in the global economy. And I wonder if they need to keep our rate down it just in an effort to be more accommodating to other countries while everybody else sort of finds the wind in their sail again. So funny you say that. Why? Last week I said if we were only looking at what's going on on our soil, they'd be raising rates. I'd be go Without a doubt. I think so too. But when you factor in what's going on around the rest of the world, that's what really, um, you know leads me to believe that we might stick here for a little while longer. Yeah. Could just be 
And yeah, and again, I think it could go either way because they could do such a small change, just a quarter of a percent, and then really make a greater impact, I think, than the than the change in rate would be the statement to say, hey, everybody calm down. This is what a quarter percent looks like, and we're not likely to do this again for probably six months. So just relax and, and see how this fits, right? I mean, I could see that happening with a good a good statement with it to keep everything from spiraling spiraling out of control. Um, I could see it going down that way. Well, and I think the other the other argument for raising the rates now is that the Fed then gains that tool again. Right. And the timing makes a lot of sense because they'll announce it here in September, probably take place in October. You'll have three to six months to figure out how it's affecting the economy. If we run into a slow first quarter again, like we've seen the past two first quarters, where GDP is negative or, you know, slightly better than positive, slightly better than zero, I mean, um, then they have the ability to to lower that rate again if they, f- if they feel that's what's needed to keep things growing. Yeah. So they, they regain that tool. Right now, that, that's a tool that's unavailable to them. You can't lower the Fed funds rate any more than it is right now. That's right. And, you know, the one of the big components of what we're looking at there is uh, inflation. You know, that's been the big thing. And that this raising the rates would be the number one tool that the Fed has to combat inflation. Um, so really, it, if there were some sort of notable inflation, um, that's where we would see the rates going up um, sooner than they have. The August... Producer price index numbers came out this week. Producer price index was, guess what? Zero. Unchanged. And then the core producer price index was plus 0.3%. So essentially still no notable inflation there. Um, so, I mean, that, that of course is just on the producer side. But doesn't it have to change on the producer side before it really bleeds over into the consumer side? Yeah. And we're just not seeing that. There, yeah, there was a few readings this year that suggested maybe we're getting closer to the inflation that we needed, but we're not there yet. Of course, we know that's something that the feds pay really close attention to. <laughs> the producer price index year over year is minus 0.8%. That's not very good. That's, that's not inflation. No. And we need inflation. Um, interesting article I read this week. Um, I kind of wanted to tie this into, to, um, why not higher interest rates? You know, what, what would be all the main arguments for it? And I'll say, since this is a, this is a real estate and mortgage show right out of the gate. Um, it makes everything a little bit more expensive at the at the home buying level and with higher rates. Yeah, with higher yeah. rates. If if interest rates and see and when the Fed changes interest rate, I guess we need to say this again because I forget sometimes that not everybody knows this at their very core, but the Feds do not set the mortgage interest rate. The interest rates that they do set have a pretty direct relationship with the mortgage interest rates, but um, it's certain like the feds could change the interest rates, uh, raise them by a half a percent. And there's, 
the the mortgage interest rate does not have to go up by a half a percent. It's going to go up by what the market needs it to do. And really, primarily there, that's that's from the secondary market. It has to do with mortgage-backed securities and what the value are of those trades. There's a lot of businesses that need things like mortgage-backed securities as part of their asset holding for their companies. Um, life insurance companies, for example, companies like this that need that long-term secured um, debt like that. And um, so, man, I'm losing my train of thought again. I should probably get like a brain scan, huh? Wow. Maybe maybe, maybe. Some ginkgo in your diet. Huh? Maybe I seen more coffee. Hang on. <laughs> here's, no. your, here's your spot. Here's your time to get a word in edgewise down. No, what I was really trying to say is that when these interest rates go up, it slows it down. It makes it more expensive, but it doesn't have to go up if the demand is such that the companies that need mortgage-backed securities stay heavy in the market even when there's a big demand, right? Even when rates are going up, it can hold interest rates down on the mortgage side. Um, when the feds cut rates out, I mean, they cut them to thaw the market in all, in all places, right? I mean, primarily the housing market. So my big concern is, as this is my big, this is my industry, this is my life, what's going to happen to real estate and, and the affordability of real estate and then the um, kind of the perception of real estate. Because doesn't I was thinking about this yesterday. Doesn't real estate feel kind of bipolar? <laughs> For the last 10 years. Yeah, yeah, man. Sometimes it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then we had like a little problem and people were like, oh, you know, like hold up the crossed fingers at it. We don't. No, that real estate ruins lives. Are you kidding? <laughs> I don't want that. I'm going to I'm going to rent. And now we're kind of wrestling this new the millennials don't even necessarily some of them don't even want to own because they've seen how grossly emotional it can be to own real estate. So it's kind of a bipolar thing. It's it's kind of radical the way it swings one way to the other. And so because it can, if rates go up, will we do that again? Will we freak people out? Will they say, this is unaffordable? Uh, I don't want to be a part of that anymore? Possibly. It I mean, could. you already see headlines like that, that there is, I think it's Bank of America has published a report saying that their prediction for uh, 2017 is that there's going to be home price declines uh, throughout the country. So... If that's a feeling I, right now when rates are rock bottom and, and home prices are recovering and, you know, there's still a lot of real estate activity, imagine when homes become even less affordable with higher rates, will then people sour on it? Will that notion of depreciation and, and that just that whole souring kind of feel, will that take over and will that become the tidal wave of, of emotion that... that People Check this feel. out. This was an article from just this week in Bloomberg. Um, they said almost half of single family homes in New York and Washington metropolitan areas are losing value. Hmm. The follow up sentence to that is a, a sign that buyers tolerance for high prices in many large U.S. cities may be reaching its limit. Um I, that's kind of interesting. Said that the total values of 45 percent of the homes in these areas fell by at least two percent. Um, in June from a year earlier, um, hmm. the only 15% of Washington residences dropped in value while 20% fell in New York. So 
Let's just suggest, and I don't know if we are or not. And by by the way, I I, I don't know jack about the uh, New York real estate economy. I assume it's pretty cutthroat. I hear they have some pretty expensive rents in Manhattan. Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we did a loan. For, let's just say uh, <laughs> though that they're right there. We did a loan for a lady in New York. Bought a second home in Morro Bay. Uh huh. And her rent was $6,100 a month. That sounds high. It was like a one or two bedroom apartment That's in Manhattan. Crazy. Granted, she made like a lot of money. So let's just say, <laughs> though, but still, right now, yeah. you know, interest rates, by the way, vary a little bit across country, don't they? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, a little, a bit. little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. Maybe by as much as the Fed's, um, you know, quarter percent change in rate. Sure. <laughs> I don't know. But let's just say that New York, okay, they're at their edge right now where people are already fed up with the uh, the high values. What does like a, a little pop in rate do there? Just exacerbate the problem? Or do they care? Depends on if they're financing or not. Right? It's a big part of it. I have another article to share later that talks a little bit about um, the markets where cash is being used. I think that's always an interesting thing. Trips me out how much people, how much cash people have available to these things. But so, yeah, tying it back together. I mean, that's what I'm looking at with the Fed changing interest rates is in some of these markets where there's already a little kind of tinge of I don't love it. You know, I, the, the people are deciding, I don't want to, I don't want to pay the premium. You know, this is too, this is crazy. It's too expensive. Um, I'm pretty good at the counter argument to that, at least around here. It's not going to, I don't think it's going to get any cheaper. I, I really don't. We haven't built enough homes. We're not going to build enough homes. And now the way we build homes to me, and perhaps I'm just a little bit, um, you know, maybe my taste, maybe I'm the outlier here, but I don't like the way the new homes are built, <laughs> you know, reach out your kitchen window and go 18 inches and you're touching your neighbor's kitchen window. I personally don't want to live in that. So I think that the lack of construction and then some of the way the new projects have the density thing and getting packed in and stuff. I just I don't think it's enough and I don't think it's attractive enough that it's actually going to compete with the existing housing stock in a way that it's going to lower prices. So I, I don't see interest rates getting or I mean uh, real estate values going down at all. Average rent in New York City, Manhattan, and I'm not even seeing square footage. Average rent for a web rent room is 3,400 a month. Yeah. And for a studio 2,351 a month. That's, That's crazy. crazy. Yeah. That's <laughs> crazy. And, uh, and I'm sure Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Hmm. We said that's crazy at the same time. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> There's a listing in Arroyo Grande right now that has uh, um, part of the city's affordable. Uh, it's one of the affordable housing units for the city. And, it, you know, under the county's um, calculations of it, I was looking this up yesterday because one uh, a couple that I'm working with they're pre-approved and out looking at homes stumbled across this listing. I think it was four fifty nine or something like this. Um, whoever buys the house has to have, uh, um, meet the affordable 
housing income guidelines. And this one was for the moderate income category. So you got, I mean, you got like, I don't remember exactly. They have what like it a said. very low, a low, yeah, there's like and a super moderate. low, low. <laughs> yeah, there's several. You know? There's several categories of low. Yeah, uh, basically from how on earth are you even able to eat at all to you're really struggling is what this chart is. And so yeah, this showed that a family to buy this four hundred and sixty thousand dollar house, a family of two needed to be making under this category 74,000 or less a year. And I was like, huh. But it led me to the website where I saw some of like the rent and the section eight stuff and things like that. And I was like, man, it, it's just a, it, it's a reminder really that how expensive things really are. When you say Manhattan's 3000 bucks for one bedroom, that's crazy. Well, and so, and so when you think yeah. about the impact that rising rates can have, that it could slow things down, it could potentially... Um, I think it change, It could change the sentiment. That's what I worry right, about because which, we're so... Which will slow things down, yeah. which could potentially bring va home values down. Granted, there's a whole supply-demand issue here, but is that such a bad thing? When, when across the country, a third of homes are affordable to the median income person and you pick a metro it's it's approximately one third of people can afford to live there so is that is it a bad thing but is that the norm no it's not no okay that's not normal <laughs> i don't <laughs> not normal. i'm not asking you if it's acceptable there was another thing but that tell I me saw. how unaffordable slow is i mean slow is very unaffordable, unaffordable. That being said, there aren't a lot of empty houses around because there are people that can't afford to be so here. So here's another thing is that um, I saw this story on CNBC that there is a new asset class in in investment and it's it's rental properties. And there are companies that in the whole downturn, in this recovery. Like Blackstone? Exactly. They bought up tons of properties. With the idea of flipping them. With the idea of flipping and them. And now have gone, oh my gosh, there's a gold mine in being a property manager. Right, because the rents are have just continued to go up and up. And now what they're doing is they're actually contracting with home builders to pre-buy tracks of homes and maintain them as rentals. These homes that are being built will never even hit the open market for a first time home buyer to buy them. Right. They're just they're working with these huge So let me ask you this. investment companies to create rental property. Just step into my trap here, but what happens over time when rent goes up and up? More people start going, "Hey, I got to get off this rental plan is throwing money down the hole and the hole ain't filling up." right? I mean, rent's 100% interest. So if that just keeps going up and up and up and up, the only way you're going to get off that escalator is to buy. In that environment, property values are not declining. Right. That's true. They're going to be keeping up with those rents. And especially if new tracks in town are built in, being built solely as investment property tracks, it's only going to create more scarcity for that person that is trying to buy something affordable in town. You know, going back to what you said, I, I said, is it is it normal for so much of it to be unaffordable, for housing to be unaffordable in so many parts of the country? Sadly, it's normal. It's not acceptable, but it's normal. 
you know, and the houses are full everywhere you look. So sadly, I think what it means, it, like it, on the bigger picture, is that Americans have some quality of life issues over how much we spend on our housing. Uh, <laughs> how else can you say it? I mean, we're we are whether we've done this to ourselves or it's just the greed or profits or you know. I don't know. I maybe it's just so hard and expensive to build because of the efficiency requirements and affordable housing requirements and open space requirements and parking requirements that we've done this to ourselves. We've just bureaucracyed the thing to the point where it's just so expensive to build that now we're all turning the screws on ourselves. I mean, you could probably make that argument. But at the end of the day, it's kind of what it means to be in the US. You know, I I mean, obviously, I say that I live in California. I always have. I feel like it's just part of being a Californian. Maybe it's the whole country. Just we pay too much dang money for our the roof over our head. So what are you going to do? When it gets more expensive, though, I really do expect that things will slow down a little bit. And I think some of that appreciation will slow down a little bit. And, you know, part of the reason why is you can bust out the calculator and say, okay, um, John and Jane come to me and they want to buy a house. And so I punch in John and Jane each work at Cal Poly and they each make $50,000 a year. And I put it all into the system here. The maximum debt to income ratio for... You know, most most people is going to be somewhere around 45%. So that's going to yield a number. Hey, based on your income, this is the house payment that you can afford at the top end. And that house payment is based on time. You know, how what's the amortization term that you're borrowing for? Most of the time, it's 30 years. So there's not a whole, there's not an opportunity to lengthen that to lower the payment. Uh, the next one is just um, the amount that you borrow and then the interest rate. And if you change the time, the amount, or the interest in any way, it has an effect on that final ability to qualify. And so when we, in an, in an environment where interest rates are declining, each time the market improves, the buyers gain affordability. And in a market where interest rates are increasing, each time they in increase, the borrower is losing affordability and in some cases have to reduce the price point that they're looking for homes on. That's a, a weird thing to say, but what I mean by that is if the interest rates are four and your maximum qualification then for a 4% interest rate is a $400,000 house, and interest rates suddenly rise to four and a half percent, your maximum qualification may fall from four hundred thousand to three hundred and eighty thousand, where you you can't borrow that extra money now because you can't afford it. The interest is too high; it pushes you over the debt to debt to income limits. So that being said, then wouldn't you expect that? And you'd you'd have to accept the premise that most people are right on the the top end of qualifying anyway, and I think a lot of times they are. Uh, but any change in that interest rate then is gonna um, kind of limit that. Well, it's gonna. There's gonna be a lot of different things that go on. There's people are gonna be forced into looking at other loan programs. They're gonna have to 
they're going to have to look at something other than a 30-year fixed mortgage. They're going to have to look at a, a loan that's fixed for five years that's got a lower interest rate to maintain that affordability. And then they're going to have to deal with it five years from now. And it's not such a terrible... I mean, it sounds so horrific and predatory I know right some now. people that lost their whole house because of that. Right, exactly. But the reality is that that outside of the United States, it's like more than 90% of... of home financing is adjustable rate mortgages. So it's not it's not ludicrous to think that that's the the way this might be going. Another option that I really think needs to be considered and if if you have any kind of influence over policy in the United States, I hope you're listening. Um how about a 40 or a 50 year loan term? I mean, even with higher rates, that's going to help affordability and I don't think it hamstrings some first-time home buyer into paying gobs of interest to a bank for for their entire working life. I don't think that's necessarily what it means. What it means is an opportunity for this buyer to get a foot in the door, to build some equity, to build some pride of ownership and 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 then at some point refinance or sell and buy something new with the equity they've built and and get into a a better loan program. And I, I just think that that's what it is. That That's the reality even today. Peop, the average homeowner keeps their mortgage for, it's like seven years. Yeah. In California, I think it's more like five years. So it, people aren't keeping loans for the full term anyway. We're not, we're not you know, hamstringing a borrower to, to be committed to a loan for 50 years. That's not the, the deal. It's created, it's, it's an affordability, it's creating a way for someone to own real estate and be able to afford it, build the equity, because that's one of the biggest benefits, right, is someday you'll actually pay it off. You'll have built equity in it. It's not 100% interest. It's actually only 4 or 5 or whatever the going interest rate is, um, interest. And then they can take that equity. They can flip it. They can refinance. As, they, as their job situation changes, their life situation changes, they can use financing to you know, get to the end of that long tunnel Yeah. at some point. I don't know. There, there's some, I read that it was, there was a, um, I want to say that she was a, a congresswoman, but did a, a study on it. Right. They kind of had a, a special committee do a study on what the 40 year mortgage or longer terms looked like. And one of the problems with, that um at least under the environment where it last existed is they charge you a little bit more in interest rate for the 40-year term but then also having that loan for the additional 10 years greatly in- increases the interest cost and so um overall at the whole when you added in that extra interest because of the extra interest rate the extra interest rate and the extra time there wasn't enough of a financial gain um, to justify allowing lenders to offer it. And I disagree with that. I think it's flawed logic. If someone... Well, go back to the formula, like I said, right? I mean, the payment is the length of time at which you borrow, the cost of which you borrow, and the amount you borrow. Um, we're all struggling with the amount we borrow because it's our, our neighborhood's they demand a premium. And unless you're, you know, inheriting a house from your parents in the town that you need to live in, you need to be buying a house at its market rate. Most people do that. 
So you just you just gonna get what market rate is. Those other two things, the the interest rate and the length that you repay that money, those are your wild cards in there. So yeah, I mean I, I'm on board with you. And and like I, I think if there's a problem there, if there's a problem where the interest is too high or something, you know, that somehow or other the calculation doesn't make the politicians happy, then then let's talk about that. You know, maybe we need to reshuffle the whole deck. 15, 10-year loan is cheaper than a 15-year loan, which is interest rate-wise. I mean, the payment's a lot more because of the shorter amortization period. But a 30-year a 30-year loan is more expensive than a 15-year loan. Um, when you When you stretch all that out, why not just go back and reshuffle the deck? Line that up a little bit better. Hey, guys, it seems that America's broke because we pay $3,000 a bedroom in New York. So we need to we need to just fix this. This is what, you know, and maybe it's by loan amount or by region or whatever, but figure out just a new way to recast it. I feel like the government already runs the mortgage system anyway. Still trying to decide whether we want Fannie or Freddie anyway. What are we gonna do with them? I uh, can't really boot them out yet because they're making too much money, and we're heading into an election season again. But I don't know, and maybe we've seen a whole new way to do it. It seems like most people that their home, other than healthcare, I think home is like the biggest financial struggle. Definitely, and it's been okay for the last couple of years with these dirt cheap rates. But once these rates go up, then what? Are we gonna? pop that part of the economy and then be, you know, cause where's all the other bright spot after housing, uh, job's been pretty good, but, um, depending greatly on housing. So, uh, I hate, I'd hate to see us take the wind out of our own sail by, by pushing up rates, um, with, you know, without a lot else cooking. Agreed. We blew right through our first commercial break. You realize right. that? Darn it. Almost the second one, actually. We're almost. We are not going to miss this second break, darn it. We're just maximizing what we get out of the show. Yeah, we are. All right. It's time for that second break. Well, the first break in the second break spot. It's Maybe you can just do the first break and the second break together in the second break spot. It's 942. We are going to step aside just momentarily to take, a, take an opportunity here to thank our sponsors. They help make the show possible. We'll be right back with more Mortgage Matters. Don't go anywhere. Keep it locked to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. To ask a question, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. We'll be back in just a few minutes. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. The state of denial is a drag and a trial. When I bought my cheap insurance, should have known this day would come. Now I've had an accident and I'm feeling quite alone. Called them at least 20 times, but they won't pick up the phone. Without personal service, my policy's kind of worthless. Get to a better state, State Farm. 
Switch to State Farm and you can save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. This is Jason Grody with Central Coast Lending, host of Mortgage Matters on KVEC. As mortgage experts, we can help you refinance your home or investment property. We can lower your rate, shorten your term, or get rid of your mortgage insurance. Don't miss the opportunity to improve your financial situation. Call Central Coast Lending today. Central Coast Lending is an equal housing opportunity real estate broker. California Bureau of Real Estate number 018-39608. NMLS number 328-358. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles in Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your host, Dan and Jason, from Central Coast Lending, wants you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody, welcome back. What do you mean, mistake, Jim? I didn't mistake. I didn't. Talk, talk. Talk, talk. Talk, talk. That's what this is, Jim. This is a talk show. Talk show, yeah. Talk, talk. Talk, talk by talk, talk. <laughs> Some interesting bank stuff this week. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um... <laughs> Do you know what? Take a stab, and I'm going to give you a hint, Dan. This is in trillions, okay? But take a stab at the total of deposits in all U.S. banks. And, the, and before you guess, though, again, this is in trillions with a T, and it's also... I was going to guess a trillion. I mean, in the trillion. Okay, good. Whew. I didn't want you to be silly and guess, like, hundreds of millions. Um <laughs> It's also uh, currently at a record level. Oh. So U.S. banks holding deposits at a record level in the trillions. I'm going to go with $15 trillion. That was close. It's 10.9. Oh, okay. It's hard to have. I mean, it's hard to have any idea. <laughs> I read that, and I, I like read past it. I'm one of those guys. Like, I got to stop and try to tie together something like that. Okay, trillion bucks. Um, well, it's not even cool to be a millionaire anymore. You got to no. be a billionaire. Yeah, in nineteen in the 1980s, when I was like, when I grow up, I'm gonna have a million dollar house. Mm -hmm. And now you're like, man, there's some million dollar houses <laughs> around where you may not feel safe, pal. <laughs> I, mean, I thought Fresh Prince of Bel-Air's house was like, that was a million-dollar house. Today, that's probably like a $5 million house. Uh, but yeah, so I try to put that in context. What's a trillion bucks? What's 10 trillion bucks? The only other thing I really know about that happens in trillions is like, um, you know, other than how many light years away the moon is or something, I'm like, okay, the the federal debt. The debt. <laughs> we got that's 20 trillion of that, and I'm like, oh, dang. We have 
in our banking system, the money that we have to throw down here is about half of what the company owes in debt. You know, the company that is the the USA. Then I figured, well, we don't. Hey, have, don't worry. We, don't worry. If that scared you, don't worry. Um, it's not scary because trust me, like our super wealthy, like um, you know, like Mr. Trump, they probably got all their money offshore. That's not even in U.S. banks. <laughs> <Right>? We <laughs> probably go. have more than the debt. It's just scattered around the world in places with you know laws that are going to protect these fat cats. Well, there's probably a lot in free and clear real estate too. Oh yeah, lots of that. Um, you were going to yeah. share something about? Oh yeah. Anyway, um, just answer by saying surprised or not surprised at the end of my sentence. J.P. Morgan, which is Chase, by the way, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and Citigroup hold forty percent of the total of <laughs> deposits in the U.S surprised i am not surprised i'm surprised that it's not more oh <laughs> okay it's got, only 40 i got you yeah for, i mean yeah. you just named off was it the three or four 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 biggest chase banks. wells b of a and city those are the four biggest banks in the united states they're they holding 40 percent. i mean yeah almost wow. half you would expect it to be more yeah um, dude wells fargo does like 25 percent of all home loans in the country yeah i just would i don't know a headline a headline grabbed my eye yesterday about um you know you have those articles that just really speak to you where you you see a headline and you're like oh yeah i gotta read this one this is my anthem online mortgage lenders are beating traditional bank loans Hmm. i was like it first registered to me that was like, hey, companies, mortgage companies are beating out the banks. And I love to hear about the market share they yield to companies like ours. Do you know that wasn't at all what this article was about? Tell a story about um, some youngster here in, uh, uh, this dude bought a house. A three, he bought a three bedroom duplex in Berkeley, borrowed his $1.1 million mortgage from Social Finance Inc. Never heard of him. Basically, like a crowdfunding site. So, check this out, Dan. This is interesting stuff right here. Said, you go in, um, it's called SoFi, by the way, it's for social finance. But you go on to SoFi and you're getting less conventional, less conventional underwriting standards, a shorter close period. Um, and in some cases, your loan is so pre-approved that your offer is good as good as cash in terms of the speed in your transaction when you go to buy. So some of these companies are popping up now to do uh, wonky lending, man. And I started looking at this and I'm like, okay, when you're getting your mortgage on Facebook from a company that has no history 
of uh, underwriting standards or you know anything that goes in all the lessons we've learned in our industry. I mean, we're we're rocking in in some cases. You know, I mean, Fannie Mae is as old as 1930. There's some good historical data there to analyze and put into business practice. Um, it seems like the new thing here is going to be these social finance companies attempting to finance homes, which I just think is pretty wild. I, I can't help but wonder when the defectors came out of, you know, like in the early 2000s, we had a handful of different mortgage companies that were doing home loans and everybody that had the experience and the wherewithal and also the the long the the investment in their company was a long standing like deep rooted really really cared i think first of all about doing good business the youngsters came along in those companies and defected and started their own mortgage companies where they did not care about the uh reputation or long-term um, health of the company. They cared about making a buck today, right? You remember that? Those guys all around. I got a kick this week. Uh, I was reading an article about Nomura, and they've got a couple of subprime mortgage-backed securities that they're out shopping right now. And I was like, man, I remember those guys. They were one of those companies that seemed to come out of nowhere and just go, hey, Oh, we're doing the stupidest possible stuff that you could do, and we're paying a premium for anybody that'll do stupid stuff and sell it to us. And then when the mortgage market imploded, as you like looked around at the end, there it was an awful lot of those companies. Like, I mean, they're they just tried to out stupid each other on what loan programs they offered. The guy would come into the office. Oh, if you had a foreclosure and a bankruptcy yesterday, we'll give you 100% financing today and a Mercedes. And you're like, perfect. That's a, it sounds like a really great loan. I don't know how you do that, but all right. <laughs> and then we were surprised when all that stuff kind of hit the fan. Um, in my In my estimation of it, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac did not ruin the housing market, as most people would say. Um, those companies, but see, nobody knows that story. And those companies aren't around to like chastise or whip anymore. Right. I mean, so many of them are gone. So all we really have is to, to blame Fannie and Freddie, but I see there's like potentially this on the horizon here for these social lending companies that are going to start getting involved in, um, <laughs> home loan business without, I mean, what qualifies you to do that? It seems like they would be subject to the same regulations as any other real estate lender, any other mortgage financing. Well, you know, it's not a qualified mortgage. So they can, so they're keeping it in their portfolio and can essentially do whatever they want. Yeah, because many of them, like, you know, when I was driving in today, I heard a commercial for that company, um, Lend Me or something like that, where you could get, I don't know what they said, you could get up to $100,000 in like less than a day or something. Um, though there, these little companies are popping up all over the place right now where people, you know, and I, and again, I read another story this week about there, these real estate investments that are happening back East right now, where you could put in, um, in the investment group, you could put in 25 bucks or 25 million bucks, whatever you got to put in. 
and then you're basically just a staked shareholder in the end profit and you'll get back your percentage of of what went there um and so you know more and more people in fact um i i see this a lot on loan applications that we get um most recently i'm thinking of um darren's where he just has money that he's loaning out on social lending websites and he's getting it back i mean i it's getting a return yeah he's I don't know if you get all of your principal back or what happens when it fails or whatever, but this is becoming a more popular thing. Yeah, but I still, I mean, I don't know the numbers. I don't know how much money is out there in this in that social lending community, but I can't, I can't believe that it's on the same scale as all of the Wall Street firms combined, you know, which, as you stated, is what contributed largely to the problems that we saw in the two, in the early to mid two thousands with with how lending got out of control. You know, it's it's great if, if they can do a loan here or there and, and accommodate someone because they have a higher risk tolerance and, and can keep it in their portfolio. But where it really becomes a problem is if they have crazy amounts of money to be able to do hundreds of thousands of loans and to keep it that going are, that are wacky and they really, you know, skew the whole market because now that's a viable way to get a loan and, and all the other buyers of mortgages have to dumb down their guidelines to compete that that's where that gets to be a problem but i just i don't think they have that much clout to be able to control the market like that only five of the top 20 mortgage originators in 2006 are still active in today's mortgage market and it's you just named four of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah no kidding huh interesting yeah i, I mean we'll just see how it goes but look those kinds of things and and they they as they define themselves they 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 contrast what traditional services are right and i think most of the time when you're getting away from what the the traditional norm is you know like these that's what a paper is that's what a fannie mae 30 year fixed is that's the the traditional a paper piece and you want to do something new and fancy where you get your mortgage through some social media lending thing. Um, generally, you're going to pay more for that. That's like the outlier. They're more accommodating. They do different things. They do weird things. And because of that, their investors need a little more premium than what you know the mortgage-backed security pays, 4% for a 30-year fix. So you pay a little bit more to get something a little bit more accommodating. That's not too unusual. But if it got too much traction and wasn't properly properly regulated, you could easily see how it's sort of almost history repeating itself where some people that really have no business in the mortgage game um, hop on in, start making some waves, cause a bunch of problems, and then they evaporate while the companies like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are left to pick up all the pieces again. One of the other big differences in this whole environment compared to before is that there because it's a non-qualified mortgage there is no secondary market really for it they're required to maintain a stake in that loan yeah some Whereas part of before it. wall street could make these bad loans trade them and then replenish their money to do it all over again <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right we got to step aside for the mandatory break we'll be back in oh about five minutes fresh up your coffee mortgage matters we'll be right back Welcome back. You're listening to Mortgage Matters with hosts Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. If you want to join the conversation, call the show at 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Now, here's Dan and Jason. 
All right, everybody, welcome back. Yeah, pretty weird day yesterday, huh? Yeah, the weather was weird. There's the weird weather was weird. Schools. <laughs> In the morning when I went out to take my kids to school, the sun was like a chartreuse pink. There was such a bizarre smoke. Chartreuse pink. Wait, wait, wait. Dad and I are both like, really? <laughs> Isn't hmm. chartreuse like, yeah, like a, a ugly yellowy? Maybe that's no. the day glow green color. But I, what I'm thinking of is like that 80s pink that... Um, you know what I'm talking about? Like neon. Like yeah, neon there you go. Pink. Neon hot, pink. Hot pink. Hot pink. There hot we go. Hot pink. Like that. Oh, yeah, for the sun. Hot pink is probably the best descriptor. Wow. No, it was bizarre how weird it looked. It, and it was, was like kind of strange. Just yeah. smoke from uh, the... Chartreuse is a pale green or yellow. You could make pink out of that. <laughs> yeah, this might be a stretch. <laughs> I mean, I can. If you guys are no no good at colors, I can't really help you there. No, I think pink and yellow are two completely different things. <laughs> I have to agree with you. <laughs> I think, yeah. You guys are fun. You know that? <laughs> you're really fun. You would hey, think you're not gonna just walk in here on a Saturday you and would, say anything. You would think what is it about my personality that if I make a mistake, <laughs> it like, it's so latched onto? Are you guys that jealous? Well, it's jealousy. Yeah, that's it's, what it is. Yeah, you hit it right on the head there, Jason. I mean, you would think that I sit over here like throwing rocks at you guys while you try to talk. Yeah, no. Or something? <laughs> Wow. No. <laughs> I can only, I, uh, I mean, yeah. I can only attribute it to you guys just must have, hold me in such high regard. Yeah, and I do have an off button for Jane's, Jason's mic over here. Oh, yeah, then the show will get real good. You, you and Dan can talk about stuff. <laughs> it's all right, man. Uh, boy. It's okay. I've been dealing I'm with just, it my whole life. I just think pink and yellow, two separate things. Thanks, Jim. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was like the the dress that you, you don't know if it's green or I mean it's blue or it's gold or whatever. Maybe, maybe it was like that. Maybe, yeah. maybe when I looked at it, because you don't look right at the sun, you know, you kind of got to like glance across it, and no matter what color it is, you do get like a weird little chartreuse image left in your eye after that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, it's been happening are... your whole life, huh? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So maybe it's not us. Colorblind? No. No, no, no. It's clearly it's clearly something about my personality. I mean, clearly. There we are. Okay. Clearly. I mean, all I all I could think, yeah. I mean, all I could think is it's just jealousy. That's all right. A lot of people jealous your whole life. <laughs> oh. What are the words? <laughs> uh, never mind. I, I need a list of the acceptable uh, swear words for the radio, Jim. Do you have that? Yeah. There's only uh, seven that you can't say. There's what are they? Seven. Yeah, let's not. No, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, that that fine is really really bad. So, yeah, I could write them down for you. What you can't say. What fun is that for radio? No. Yeah. No, I, don't, I, w I wouldn't want to say them anyway. No. There's probably, you know, people listening that don't want to hear that stuff. 
<laughs> All right, let me pull my notes back up. Hang on. Or go go ahead, Dan, whatever you want. Well, I was just sharing with you. In the you were just waiting for me to step <laughs> into the next trap. Such a such a quiet week last week. We had a day off because of Labor Day. And then um, just not a lot of news. Not a lot of news at all. No, there really wasn't too much news. Um, even some of the commentary that, that I get and read each day. Um, talked about a lot of boring stuff this week, you know, talked a lot about TRID and whether or not your company is ready for TRID and, um, TRID, what's the acronym? That can't be. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but I know what it does. Yeah. But that's something, I mean, is that what you were wanting to? No, I was just saying, well, no, cause that's so boring. I, I mean, <laughs> It's just terribly boring. If we wanted to talk about those super boring things, um, no. And so, like in trying to think of content of what we might talk about today, there there was a handful of things that I that I thought were worth talking about. Um, you know, I I don't doubt that there are many people that listen to the show, if only by accident, are listening. And you know, as we're talking real estate and mortgage, um, I got a couple of calls this week from people that are wanting to buy a home but not yet, like in a year or something. And um, I'm impressed by that. And so I guess one of the things that I would just say to most people here is that if you don't own a home yet and you know that you're not even quite ready yet, it's a good idea. I mean, those uh, I, I never was a planner type. Are you a big planner, Dan? Like when you, you know, sit down with your goals and all that kind of thing, like you write the stuff out and then figure out how to do the action plan to get there. Mm, Not a whole lot of that. I don't, I don't quite have that formal of a process. Well, there's some people that do. And in this week, I, I met a couple people that were said, hey, I want to buy a house next year and I need to begin this dialogue about what I need to do. And I was like, that's pretty good. And the first guy... Um, work for the county of San Luis and somehow or other made it through college doing pr pretty good, had saved up a pretty decent amount of money. Um, never had credit ever, not a credit card, not a student loan, nothing, not, not an auto loan, just a ghost on the credit radar. Um, and so I'm really thankful that he had the wherewithal to, to walk in and say, Hey, what do I need to start working on? Um, cause some of that stuff can take a year, sometimes two years to get those ducks in a row. Starting credit, um, from scratch is not necessarily an easy thing to do. There's some tricks to how to get it off the ground, but part of what goes into having a good credit score and good credit profile is just some longevity. So you don't want to you don't want to be just working and saving your money to show up one day and be like, oh, I'm ready to own a house now, only to find out that you should have began this a couple of years ago because you don't have the credit you need to be able to get in on that program. This has always been one of those things that has bothered me about lending. Huh. And I get it with the, you know, 20 something year old who doesn't have a lot of history of having a job and paying bills and that kind of stuff. Um, but 
every now and then, and probably more often than most people would think, we run into someone in their their 50s or 60s who has very little credit. Yeah. Because they grew up in a time when you lived within your means. Sure. You paid cash for things. You don't use credit because that's just like borrowing against yourself. That That's what leads to financial ruin. There's this whole mentality that you you live within your means and you pay for things with the cash well, you earn. Well, and really you're paying their true value. Yeah. Because if you end up using credit, then you have to pay interest, which means you're overpaying for the good or service in the first place. And it it's a whole great big mess. So we run into these folks who are... 50 and 60 and even older that are that's their credit profile it's very limited they have a credit score it's a good score but you look at another i mean you just have to have minimum numbers of trade lines in order to qualify for home loans for the most part and these folks don't even meet that and it's always bothered me that we have to sit here and like basically beg for these people to be approved it's like man these people made it 60 years without having to put anything on a credit card if that doesn't demonstrate ability to repay um i don't know what does yeah i mean these people are so financially sound they've never had to borrow to get what they need i can see the argument there but you know going back that if you were sitting down with um let's just say your mom and your grandmother and you guys, you you guys were going to craft some sort of evaluation standards by which you're going to loan out your family's complete wealth. You'd like to know. I mean, yeah, okay. I love that you're 60 and you 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 have really no credit profile, but the fact that you don't have to borrow and you don't have any collections and anything, I would rather loan to the guy next to you that just demonstrated you know 30 or 40 different accounts that this dude's borrowed and paid back and you know in the hundreds of thousands of dollars range i mean it's not hard to see how you can get more comfortable when that history is available um and you know what sadly uh, there was room made um across the mortgage industry i mean the guidelines got um really was really favorable for people with uh, that don't use credit um a few years back, we did alternative credit where, so you don't use, you know, you don't have a visa card because you, you use cash for things like that. And you just, you're not a big credit user. When you bought your car, you paid cash. And so the first, oftentimes for people, the first time they'd really come in going, all right, for the first time in my life, it's unrealistic for me to believe I can save the 400 grand I need to buy a home. So I want to borrow that. I'd like to borrow that. And you go, dude, you got no credit. You, you've been good for you. You've been paying cash for everything and everything, but nobody's comfortable at all with you. So how about you come up with some things you do pay and let's, let's do our best to verify that. So they say, all right, well, what do you pay? Well, I pay my rent and pay my phone bill and, uh, pay my, have electricity, and whatever, and all these, and yeah. Cash and water. Oh, and you know, I was in a hard spot last year and I, the dude at the tire store gave me some tires that I, you know, paid for over three months or something. So you begin kind of going after these letters where you would be documenting that, hey, while this person doesn't have that credit on their credit report today, here's some letters of people that are basically saying this dude does, you know, pays the bills the way he says he will. Um, and what happened there? We totally abused it. 
Um, it, all of a sudden, you took people that had no credit uh, and started making up those trade lines and causing a lot of problems. I mean, that was some of the things that happened when those offbeat companies were coming into the market doing wild stuff 10 years ago. And, um, you know, it caused some problems. You can still do loans today, by the way. I mean, we did, we did a crazy loan, um, not too long ago, like a manufactured home loan for somebody with alternatively documented credit. But that was actually that that's a great one to bring up because that was another person who was, I want to say around 50 years old yeah, and was a cash buyer. This woman lived within her means. She, right. she didn't buy more than she had in her bank account. And it makes a lot of sense. I get the abuse. And again, I'm, I'm going to use the age um, difference here. You got someone who just moved out of mom and dad's house trying to qualify for 400 grand um, to buy a house. They have no real history of paying rent, no real history of paying utilities. Or just having the mental fortitude to get and keep a job. Right. But then you have someone who's 50 years old who's managed to keep a roof over their head for, you know, 30 years without the assistance of mom or dad, who's managed to pay the keep the lights on and, and keep the, you know, the gas burner so they can make some dinner every night. They managed to do these things and keep them going for, you know, however long they've been out of from under mom and dad's, you know, rule. So that makes a little more sense in that situation. I get that. That that makes more sense to me. I like the idea, though, too, of people that understand that lending has some requirements. That's true. And they didn't just wake up this morning with their no credit having booty and say, I'm buying a house today. (laughs) That's that's a good point. I want somebody that said, hey, owning real estate is really important to me. And like I, how I started this conversation. Find out what it takes. What does it take? Yeah, yeah I'm a cash dude. This I guy called that. me up yesterday. He said I don't want any credit cards. I get, I get that, buddy. You, the fact that you already made it through college and have a job at the county with no credit, I understand. You don't want a car loan. You don't want a credit card. These things are not. It, in fact, it's more important to you to not have that than to have that. But let me just show you what's in my world. If you want to buy a home, this is what you have to do. Yeah. And and we've scooted around the issue here. We might as well just let everyone know. This is probably what's really important for the listeners is that the minimum credit profile that that's being looked for when qualifying for a home is three open and active trade lines with it for a tw- for 12 months yeah 12 with at least a 12 month history and so that means it's not just a credit card that you have that you never use it's you have to have a credit card it has to be one that you can actively go out and use today yeah. it can't be one that you know you just haven't used and it's now dormant you can't even go out and use it and you, you have to have a 12 month history of using that credit card or having that student loan or, or a car loan a or car loan what have you yeah yeah and you know it, it's worth saying that on some loan programs, there's even some programs around that have a five trade line with 24-month history requirement. That's going to be some of the most conservative part. You'll see um, that a lot on like a jumbo yeah, type of loan. But even like on that. some Fannie Mae loans, um, like you, you, usually if you have a score and your deal makes sense on like a Fannie Mae loan, you don't really usually no get minimum. nitpicked about yeah. how many trade lines you have. But like in, in my example that I'm talking about this morning, this guy um, just doesn't have a score. And when you run the credit, it actually says 
um, reject because there's insufficient um, information to calculate a credit score. So the cool thing is, is um, he's got some time. So we're going to work on that. And um, I think really that's probably the bigger message that I want to say is the people that are listening to this show that maybe go, ah, the mortgage matter shows on again and that's cool. Whatever. Like it. Don't like it. I don't care. Um, but if you want to own a house one day, um, why not come up and say, Hey, I'm not ready today. And I know I'm not ready today, but what do I need to do? Uh, what can I work on? What these things on my credit, any opinion about something I could do to improve my profile or savings? What's a good savings goal? How much is a down payment requirement? I mean, I saw recently, um, some numbers suggesting that as many as 60% of the public believed that you had to have a 20% down payment to own a house. You stop and think about that. My numbers tell me that 60% of the public owns a house. Yeah. Like 63 or 4%, right? Yeah. So there's a big portion of people that already own a house that think you have to have 20% equity to buy a house. That's wild, man. These people already own it. They don't know the rules. Um, you well, don't they need. They might have bought when the rules were a little different. I don't know if they were ever that you had to have 20%. Point being, you don't need 20%. Um, in some cases, you need no percent. And I would suggest that in a lot of cases, 5% will get you into a home in a pretty darn good program with a pretty darn good interest rate. Yeah, you're going to have some mortgage insurance for the the first handful of years, but hey, what happens when you sideline yourself? Like I'm just all right. <clears throat> I'll see you guys, you know, at the all the these are me and all my prospective home buyer buddies. We're all in the market to buy together. I need 20% down, so I'll see you all in uh, five years. I'm going to go put my head down and save a hundred grand. <laughs> You're in pretty good shape if you could save a hundred grand in five years, huh? What do you think? It'd, it'd probably take most people, you know, 10 years to save a hundred grand, 15 years to save a hundred grand. What happens to the cost of that? So he shows back up 15 years later. All right, guys, I did it. I saved my hundred grand. I got my 20% down and they're like, Oh, dude, 20% down is 200 grand now. Go try again. You know, homes doubled in value in 15 years. Um, you know, I obviously I, I kind of tongue in cheek the point there, but what I'm trying to say is you don't need to you don't need to sideline yourself and wait for the market to pass you by while you're at home saving. There's programs where you can get, you know, a way better deal than that. Those are the kind of people that we want to come talk right now before the rates go up, before uh, property values get more expensive. Um, you we, know, we offer a jumbo loan that has a 5% down payment requirement. Yeah, that's wild. Huh? Up to a million bucks. That's wild. Huh? You can get a million dollar house with 5% down. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Opportunities there. But I do, uh, back to your point. I think if you're going to own a million dollar house, you should have some money to put down. To your point though, the, <laughs> the, you know, the person who. More than 50 who grand. Who has a goal of buying real estate and owning real estate, doing their homework. You know, yeah. That, 
That that's a good point. It's, well, it speaks volumes too. I mean, that, and you're going to go through the process a lot easier when you finally show up to really apply and go for it because you knew what to expect and you groomed yourself to be into a position where you were going to be able to do it well. You know, the other people that really can benefit. I did a loan a few years back. In fact, I I did a I did a loan to help this couple. Um, they both worked for the uh, county here in like uh, mental health services or something like this. And they lived in slow, great couple. Um, they went where they could afford. They bought a house out in Napomo. I refinanced their home later. Um, they had some equity, get rid of some mortgage insurance, whatever, got them in a better spot. I got a phone call from these guys a month ago. Um, hubby still works for the county and wife quit her job and started an in-home daycare. So I was like, well, it had been a couple years since I talked to them. So I said, well, how long have you been doing an in-home daycare? She said two years. Sweet. Said what they want to do is sell their house and buy a new house. So I said, yeah, let's go through the process. Send me your tax returns. They had written off so much expenses and so much losses from the in-home daycare that they couldn't even qualify for the home they already have if they had to, let alone buy a bigger house. So I go, no, you know, here's the problems and kind of take them through the whole thing. And unfortunately, these guys are now at least one year, if not two, of cleaning up the act and getting things back on track and all that. Uh, but this is like existing clientele. Um, wouldn't you think when you have that kind of relationship with like a, a lender and recent history that you would call them up and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. Is this going to cause problems or red flags or whatever, you know, um, self-employed people? I see you over there writing off every last thing you can um, for the meals and the the gas and the travel and the, you know any the shirt you buy the haircut you get writing off things that you know if you got audited the IRS would throw out half of them but you're writing off everything and then you come in and want to buy a home um, we always tell people think about that. Think about, you know, your measure out your desire to um, maximize your tax write-offs, minimize your tax liability, and uh, your desire to own a home. <laughs> Oftentimes, you know, you, you probably, if you buy the house, then you're going to get a write-off for having a house. <laughs> you're going to be growing equity and owning a home. Um, for many people, especially those self-employed people, uh, there's a lot of folks that aren't even very good with money. Um, having a home is like a forced savings. It's like a forced retirement. It's a big component to getting yourself set up for retirement someday. That's stuff worth planning for. Um, those are the people that we want to, to call and come see us and, and craft a plan is uh, anybody that's got that desire to own a home one day that doesn't yet. And I'm not suggesting that it's tomorrow or whatever. Um, sometimes you work with people for a few years before they can buy a home. So there you go. Um, it is 1030 now. So it's time to do commercial break. We're not doing very good on the breaks today, huh, Jim? Not really. Not really, okay. huh? It's been riveting conversation. Too, too talky. 
All right. Well, Dan's laughing over there. Anyway, he always laughs at me. It's jealousy. <laughs> well, Dad's had time to take a nap this morning, See? so <laughs> he's in a good mood. Oh, God. <laughs> all right, should we? Uh, should sure is heavy carrying all this weight over here. <laughs> yes, we should. Exhausting. Yeah. We should. I should hit this F nine button on the computer. F nine. I think that's going to load the projector, dude. Uh, I, don't know. I don't know. All right, we're going to be back after Jeff or after Jim hits his F nine. <laughs> <laughs> Ask a question or make a comment, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. We'll be back after these messages from our sponsors. This is Jason Grody with Central Coast Lending. I see you at our kids' Little League games. I bump into you at the grocery store, and it's always fun when we pass each other at Farmer's Market. I'm not a national bank or a faceless website. I'm a local lender, accountable, competitive, and ready to help. Call Central Coast Lending today. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543 Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is an equal housing opportunity real estate broker. California Bureau of Real Estate number 018-39608. NMLS number 328-358. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley & Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley & Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley & Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. The state of denial is a drag and a trial. When I bought my cheap insurance, should have known this day would come. Now I've had an accident and I'm feeling quite alone. Called them at least 20 times, but they won't pick up the phone. Without personal service, my policy's kind of worthless. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you can save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. All right, guys, welcome back. Hey, before we move on from that subject, uh, you know what we didn't talk about in that, uh, the other reason to come in and get help? What? Sometimes um, people just have, like, things on their credit they don't even know is there, you know? So, yeah, you come in because you're just looking for help with a home loan, and then what you find out is you have bad credit <laughs> there is a medical collection on there and you're like oh man yeah that 
insurance that they sent it to the wrong insurance and then the medical bill went unpaid and then when they contacted me you know, I since I had insurance I didn't want to pay it and so I'd forward it to these other people and then in that whole passing around you know where the insurance companies just aren't doing it right all of a sudden there you got a medical collection and um those that's gonna be something that you need to take care of for more reasons than just qualifying for a home loan next year you know that that has an effect on anything else that you want to do sometimes you might not even be able to get a rental property because your credit looks low enough that you don't you know, some people only care about the score. They don't want an explanation that the insurance company didn't pay a medical bill on time, and that's how you got a collection. So, you know, again, it's just it's that checking in on it, know what's going on, know you know, knowing what it's going to take to fix it or um, to accomplish your goals. I like that commercial. You guys seen that commercial? There's a commercial on TV right now with the dude that um, it's like a free credit score.com thing or something and the dude's like uh gonna get credit and his wife's like when was the last time you even used your credit and he got like the bomb leisure suit in the 70s like for the disco do you know what i'm talking about no <laughs> there's like a, a chick at the at the store where he's buying the suit the suit's so expensive he needs to get credit and she checks his credit and she's like Yo, credit's out of sight, daddy-o. And so he's like, he's got an afro, and he's like, yeah. Or like a perm, you know? And then the next thing you know, it's like, today, he's all, he's like old and balding on a bench, and he, it turns out that oh, he yeah, still yeah. has the same great credit he yeah. had to get that leisure suit years ago. Yeah. I know, that's I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't I, think... I detect a, a I don't think bad coming back from the next break. There you go. Yeah, but I don't think people go like 40 years in between that from your leisure suit financing credit. um, And then 40 years later, you're like, what credit score do I have? It's usually a lot more important. Employers now want to see it's a part of background checks, part of uh, the hiring process. Make sure that you're not a deadbeat on paying your bills. Says something about the character, so. It matters there. Um, I wanted, I did want to go back and talk again a little bit about this. I, I gave a presentation to a group of realtors last week um, about down payments and what those options are. Um, and I thought it would just be useful information since we were talking about the fact that as much as 60% of people uh, population believes you have to have 20% down to buy a home. I was combating that with these facts. Um, in our county, we can do the USDA loan in a lot of places. And USDA loan is cool. Um, it's about to go out of style. I'll tell you why. Uh, has a maximum loan amount of 417000 So until that loan amount changes, I think a lot of the county is bumping into that. Um, it's hard. I mean, there aren't a lot of neighborhoods left in the county where you can get uh, buy a home like a stick built home for less than four hundred grand. I mean, we're we're kind of heading there. No, but there's still a lot. I mean, if you if you look in North County, if you look in Napomo, I saw a t I saw a, a, a two bed. I think it was a two bedroom, one bath home in Morro Bay listed for three ninety five in this morning's paper. That would work. 
So there, there's some opportunities in all of those areas I just mentioned, North County, but, North, uh, but north of the grade, Napomo, the coast. Yeah, and I all guess those areas are eligible. just in context, what I mean is that three years ago, all day long in Los Osos, all day long in Atascadero, and you know you could find homes for three hundred thousand bucks. It's sure. getting harder. Um, and by the way, that maximum conforming loan limit is under review again at the end of the year this year. This might be the first time in like ten years they're going to raise it. Uh, yeah, I doubt it too, but I hope so. I mean, as property values push into it, here's a great example of why they should. Um, the USDA wants to make home loans to continue to help um, low to moderate income people afford housing in it their rural work, communities. Though. There would have to be so many other um, revisions they to the follow. USDA program. If you look at a $417,000 loan on USDA uh, and there's that income cap, Right. Which in our area is actually pretty high. It's like eighty seven, eighty six thousand seven hundred dollars. Yeah, that's a pretty good income. Um, the person who who has an income at or below that level, so they qualify for USDA, and they're pushing up against the max loan amount, they have to have zero other other payments yeah. in order to meet the debt to income ratio. So you really couldn't have a more expensive home and still be under that income Why are cap? you poo-pooing on I'm me? I'm just saying it doesn't make sense. What I think What if need, that guy has 5 kids? With the whole the whole conforming loan limit is flawed when it's a blanket loan limit for the entire country. Yeah. Because $400,000 here buys you so much less than what it could buy you and in i've been watching tennessee uh, or something i've been else. watching like one of those you know house hunter shows where they were they were in south carolina for a minute like dang you know what you can get for 200 grand in south carolina a lot like man the president could live there i understand they got like mosquitoes and humidity and stuff but it had me thinking maybe i ought to move you gotta run your air conditioning a lot for your like leftover couple hundred grand you'd have i really think that that loan limit should be evaluated on at least a state-by-state -state basis i think so too um and the other thing is with technology today, we are so, we have our finger so on the pulse of the, um, you know, each different real estate economy in, in, in these micro markets around here. The FHFA is uploading, uh, capturing the data from every refinance and every purchase con uh, transaction that the appraisals, the full appraisals are being uploaded into the system now. So you're getting such a higher confidence level of what values are in any given area. I really do think it, it paves the way to allow something to happen to where it was at least more regional. You know, like I could see how take like if you took california like i'd say let's take um take the five and then just say the things west of the five and then the things east of the five and then let's go ahead and just take the the quadrants if you really wanted to hone it down and that that southwest quadrant that's like you know probably call it like slow to san diego you know everything on this side of the five again that's gonna be more valuable and needs a higher loan limit than the things that are like east and south like el centro and san Bernardino yeah. and victorville and think bakersfield west los angeles east los angeles yeah i mean, I mean yeah. 
Uh, yeah. And going up the coast, it's it's probably, I mean, and I admittedly am a Southern California guy, so I don't know where you draw the line with the 80 or something. Is that the thing or up there? It kind of goes from Tahoe to San Francisco. Is that the right freeway? But mm-hmm. I would suggest the same thing. It's like coastal of there. It's kind of in the high rent district. Away from there, it's getting a little bit cheaper. The 80 actually goes all the way to Maine. Yeah, no, I drove. I drove the eighty. That's probably the only reason I know that. I drove the eighty across the U.S. What do you think about it? It it does go far. What do you think about the five? I mean, the farthest. You you got things like Knott's Berry Farm, Disneyland, west of the five, which are in good neighborhoods, obviously. And then you got east of the five, which is east Los Angeles and yeah, east Orange County. And And I don't want to upset anybody. I'm sure there's some great places (laughs) east of the five. Yeah. That's not what I'm trying to say. Point being it could technology would allow us to hone in on that a little bit further. Let's go back to the original discussion though. We're hitting some of the upper limits of what you can do with USDA financing right now in our local community. Here's the bullet point for USDA still opportunities in slow county for no down payment 100% financing you could be a first time home buyer buying real estate with no down payment did and do you guys know how much no down payment is Zero. yeah it's literally none um that's pretty cool that's not 20% that's no like i mean that's zero down payment um, the next one is going to be VA. If by chance you're a veteran, um, that's a killer program. Again, in many cases, no down payment. Uh, the and, and that one goes beyond that $417,000 loan amount. That actually, you can buy, in some cases, homes for six or $700,000 with no down payment. Um, obviously, not everybody's a veteran. So moving on from there. The next real program... Um, in the 3% down category is the Fannie Mae conventional loan held to a loan, a maximum loan amount of 417,000. So now you can get a Fannie Mae 30 year fix that regular old vanilla best loan money can buy loan with 3% down. But again, limited to 417,000. Once you use the Fannie Mae loan to borrow more than 417,000, we have the kind of super conforming program, which will take you up to $561,200 with a 10% down payment. You already mentioned earlier in the program about some jumbo products that are 5% down up to a million bucks. Mm-hmm. So we're like, we're kind of doing a flyby of all the programs, but this other jumbo program, this, this is not Fannie Mae. This is private label mortgages that... Um, banks are making, and there's quite an appetite for them. The interest rates are actually phenomenally low for a program like that. Um, you can buy around the county here with one of those programs for, you know, five percent down. Some cases, ten percent down. Um, there, what that means is, with the power of lending, you can almost buy at any income level. Well, I mean, if you can qualify for it. Um, Almost at any loan amount, again, if you can qualify for it, with less than 20% down through the entire housing stock. So there's a lot of opportunity there that most people don't know exists. We have a phone call. We've got Matt calling from San Luis Obispo. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning. I appreciate your comments uh, 
the mortgages. Uh, you made a comment that uh, the Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae were not the, the main culprits for uh, for the uh, to be blamed to be blamed for the real estate problems we had in 2008 and thereabouts and before that. Uh, what would be the the major reason why we had such a problem with them? Yeah, I mean, and this this is something in the beginning of our show we spent complete episodes describing this, but um, and I'll and I'll do my best to give you a really fast version. But my my first job in mortgage, uh, once I got out of Cal Poly, my first job in the mortgage business was for a local lender here, um, and really what was going on was there was these Fannie Mae loans, but they were limited. Um, Typically the borrower had to make a down payment and they were limited in what was like combined loan to value, right? Like Fannie Mae didn't want you to get an 80% first and a 20% second. Fannie Mae never offered second. So you could piggyback a Fannie Mae loan with one of these other loan programs, which we would, it was Alte. I mean, that was ultimately what it was. And what ends up happening is these companies that offered these seconds started saying, hey, we don't want to just be in second position. We'd like to be in first position. So they start coming up with ways to compete for the first lean business. And in doing so, um, you know, kind of skipping through the thing, but these companies dumb down the guidelines, right, where they um, – remove credit requirements, remove asset requirements, remove income requirements, remove bankruptcy seasoning requirements, remove down payment requirements. By the end of it, they've they've shucked all of the common sense and logic out the window. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, while they did dumb some guidelines down to compete, it certainly was never to that same degree, but they lost so much market share. Um, and to give you an idea, if we made a loan that we'd funded a Fannie Mae loan and we're going to sell it on the secondary market, we could sell it for about a quarter percent profit. That was usually the markup of what that loan could be sold for to Wall Street. If we made an Alt-A loan um, you know, to the same borrower for the same property, that loan could be sold for about a 6% profit at times. So what ends up happening is the incentive then for all of the salespeople to sell these new riskier loans starts driving money away from Fannie Mae. And the way that, in my experience, the way they started to compete was trying to be more convenient, drive-by appraisals because they were cheaper and less invasive, but they started doing things that were called fast and easy or um, express or limited documentation programs where if you had a 760 credit score, you could give us just pay stubs instead of W-2s and tax returns. And so those little accommodations to attempt to keep those people in the fold ultimately cost some market share. When those companies, the Alt-A companies all vanished nearly overnight. And, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing to me because I could give you these laundry lists of these companies that popped up overnight, usually defectors from a bigger company like Credit Suisse. You know, a lot of their management would defect and start a new company like the Winter Group, for example, and roll out guidelines and start buying loans the next day on credit facilities and repackaging and reselling. They cared less about the business model and just about the profits. And when the, you know, everything hit the fan, those other companies, they've, they vaporized, they were all 
doing business on credit, had no real assets, had no no board that cared about anything but profits and went into thin air. But what we were left with was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. So every loan that they have when real estate gets cut in half, the loans that they made more conservatively, they never did no down payment loans. But all of those loans now um, were in jeopardy because in some cases, the asset that secured them was now worth half. They made a $400,000 loan on a $500,000 house, and now they have a $400,000 loan on a $200,000 house. I mean, that kind of thing, that's what Fannie and Freddie had to survive. So um, I don't think they're completely without blame, but I, I assure you from firsthand experience, we would not have experienced what we had if those other companies weren't allowed to pop up into the game with no regulation, destroy the market and disappear overnight and leave Fannie and Freddie holding the bag. That's really what I mean by that. Yeah, I appreciate the comments very much. Isn't there a danger uh, with you you're just describing that uh, uh, the, uh, the some of the government programs now are willing to lend money at 0% down? That in, in itself invites the same type of a problem that we, we just went through. And it seems to be paradoxical that and I say, didn't we learn anything? You know, if you don't have, if a person doesn't have enough skin in the game, yeah. they are they are more likely to walk away. Yeah, and then uh, it's a bad thing to promote the zero uh, percent down because that will not bode well. And I'm reminded of a, in the '80s, uh, the first time uh, the uh, lending requirements um, were forcing the uh, government was forcing the lenders to take into account the, the minority status. Right. So at that point, uh, our lending. For the first time in basically in in, in history of uh, economic uh, uh, life, uh, lending had to uh, be done on on social criteria rather than fiscal criteria. And uh, in fact, Janet Reno, if I remember right, went to went to the lenders and and said, "If you don't make over fifty percent of your mortgages to minorities, then we we the Department of Justice we're going to sue you." Right. And that, I think, is totally inappropriate in, in, yeah, in and, the uh, society. You know, Matt, that was partially, like, earlier in the show when we were talking about alternatively documented credit. Um, that was in part where that came from, was that there was arguments to be made that some of the minorities that were living in, you know, in the... California or whatever state, they didn't use the banking model the same way. They didn't use credit cards. And so therefore, it was basically discriminatory to require that somebody had a credit score. That's how that's the light that got shed on that. Those things make it tough. And those are still the same problems today. Like when you say it's not, it's probably not a popular thing to promote a zero down payment program. The zero down payment program is in for USDA is only for, and literally only for the um, low income people of our county. So it, it becomes one of those things where that's one of the programs that are available to help some people that may not have any other help. Um, and it's you could easily become unpopular with the other half of the country if you want to take up the side of, you know, those people deserve help or the other side of those people don't deserve help. I have a couple comments for you, Matt. Um, one is that one of the big differences between today's you know, zero down program and, and a mid 2000 zero down program is layered risk. 
um, what Jason described was not only a, a no down payment, but we also would for, you know, we'd, we'd allow um, little to no credit history. We would allow stated income or no income, you know, and the list goes on and on of all the layering of risk that would occur in the early to mid 2000s. Today, there's one risk factor and it's only the down payment. Um, everything else is fully documented, fully documented appraisal, fully documented, um, you know, borrower qualification with assets and income, um, debt ratio requirements that are very stringent. So we've really limited the risk factor to, um, to just the down payment issue. Also, the products themselves are more stable. We've got you know, 99% of loans are 30 year fixed mortgages. So you know that the payment today will be the payment tomorrow. It's not the adjustable interest right. only or negatively amortizing ones so, of the past. So that's what's different. And the other thing is um, that I wanted to say was just the, the market share that these riskier loans today take up, you know, a, a USDA program is probably less than, five percent of all mortgages being originated i was going to say less than a half a percent yeah i mean it, it i may be i think within what i see in our business on a monthly basis is less than five percent of usda loans are originated in our company um whereas the the alt a and subprime loans that were being originated in the early to mid 2000s it got to be as high as 40 percent of all loans originated were on those subprime programs so those are the big differences between today and yesterday's mortgage market. Very good. Appreciate your comments. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening, Matt. Thanks for your call. Um, we always appreciate the different points of view and, and sharing your comments and questions here live with us on the air. Makes for a good show. Yeah. I'd hop right on to what you said, too. I, I For so many reasons, the landscape has wildly changed today. Um, in fact... There's a good part of me that thinks with everything that has been done, even if Fannie Mae switched over into 100% financing, that you probably are still going to see some pretty high quality loans being made. Fannie Mae, if you remember, they actually did 100% financing for a brief moment. It was yeah, called the, the Flex 100. The Flex 100 or the My Community program. Those existed, but But that was that was at the very tail end and it and it was really just out of a a need to be relevant because they were losing their relevance in a major way. You you already mentioned the profit margin difference between a Fannie Mae loan and a subprime loan. The rates were not very different between the programs. So to a borrower, it's like, well, I can go deal with Fannie Mae and maybe my rate will be a quarter percent lower. But, you know, it's it's just so much easier to go this other route. And and loan officers played their part in that, too helping people come to that conclusion because there was a profit margin difference uh, between the two loans and a compensation difference for them. So there was, you know, both sides were being directed towards the more profitable route. And it got to that, you know, Fannie Mae was losing market share in a major way. You already said this, but to put a number to it, they 40%, I mean, Fannie Mae traditionally is like 80, 90% of the mortgage market. And they had dropped significantly to like 60% uh, market share, greatly reduced their market share. So they were trying to be relevant. And that that's what happened. Yeah. It's very different today. Yeah. Very different. They're back to 90 plus percent of market share. Um, and they're back to their more normal, you know, fully documented guidelines, which 
I think we're in a good spot. I, I, I don't think the down payment thing is that big of a deal because when you look at it on a percentage basis, yeah, it seems like it's a pretty minimal amount of skin in the game. And, and granted, 0% doesn't get any lower than that, but you have a fully documented borrower, and even 5% is well, a lot of Well, some appraiser anonymity based on those recent laws. Yeah. Uh, we care so much now about um, employment, you know, less tolerant of job gaps and industry changes. We... The way we calculate over time. I mean, we've eliminated the layers of risk. Yeah. And even even in the mid 2000s, we talked about this when we got together in loan committee to discuss the riskiest of loans. We talked about layered risk. Yeah. But somewhere along the line, um, it got it got dumb. And, and I don't know. We stopped talking about layered risk. But now, you know, well, it becomes what of, it's all about. I think we really it became one of those things where you're uh, going to choose to continue to take market share when that's all the market basically has to offer. Do you want to do this business or do you do you want to take your chances at staying in business and and snubbing what has become the norm? You know, 40% subprime loans all these negatively amortizing all this bizarre stuff that's happening is like you, you may fundamentally disagree with that loan product completely. Now you as a business owner or management, you have to make the decision. Are you going to say, while I don't personally agree, it's like, it's like owning stock. Do you own stock right now? in Philip Morris, <laughs> many people do. They, they don't want to see smoking, you know, especially in the kids and all these things. However, they're willing to profit from it. It's kind of the same thing at the bank level with those programs. But yeah, anyway, it's different today. That That's the point. Um, it's better today. It's more predictable today. We're doing better today. Um, now our biggest concern is what happens when interest rates go up a little bit. Hey, folks, we... we do this show every week. We hope to give you a little taste of the kind of thoughtfulness that we provide in a mortgage transaction. Um, we truly believe that we are experts in this business. We have a, a history of being in this business. We've seen the the good times, the bad times, and, and really what we're here to do is help you figure out the best mortgage tool for your real estate needs. If you need any help, give us a call at the office this week, 543-LOAN, 543-5626. Just call 543-LOAN. Or look us up online at centralcoastlending.com. We will be back next week with another episode of Mortgage Matters.